I mean, we're not there yet, but it's getting very close. Okay, that's right. Okay, ladies. So we're up to Parshas Vayeshev. It starts from chapter 37. And, huh? What page is it in the blue one? 199. 199. You're asking or you're telling me? Telling, sorry. Okay, 199 in the blue books, because I don't have it in front of me, so I don't know what the answer to the question is. Okay? Um... What was the end? Where, where are we up to? Anybody remember? Um, Yaakov wants to retire. Right. So for, he's coming back from where, last week. He came back from Tzigizund. He came back from, he had his time in Lovin's house. He comes back with his families. He has the showdown with Aesop. And that's court, sort of what's going on. If you look at like the, the, the voracious Torah portions as a whole, so... Avram has Lechacha and Vayera, and Chayesara is like a crossover parsha, and then Yitzchak has. Uh, uh, he's kind of like a little bit of Chayesara and a little bit of Tolas. He's kind of like. I thought he's kind of just there. He's, kind of he's a little bit. the story through. No, Yitzchak is a little bit. He's there, like a little bit of Tolas. Stick with me, ladies. Um, and then we have Yaakov and Esav pick up really in. Toldos and Vayetze is already story. Yaakov's story. Vayetze, Vayishlach is Yaakov's story. And now we're up to Vayeshev. So Vayeshev and Miketz and Vayigash and Vayichi. We're really shifting the story a little bit away from Yaakov. And we're, ta- we're starting to build the story of the tribes. So in the, in the question of where, where we headed, like historically, that's kind of where we are. So right now is our first Torah portion that's going to open up Meaning we've had their birth, but now we're starting to we're starting to like have these conversations about the tribes and how does the Jewish people what does the Jewish people look like and how do we how do we do all those kind of pieces? Um, so Amber and I were talking before. She's like everybody knows this parsha, right? <laughs> but it, they're famous. There's a lot of famous things. So hopefully we'll be able to make some uh, move quickly and finish the whole parsha. That would be great. And we have a couple of surprises inside that I think sometimes we forget when we don't actually look inside. So, so the first thing that we, I want to, I want to preface the whole story with one comment and Amber don't answer because I already gave the answer. Um, what is Yosef's, so to speak, his full name? To, to add something? <laughs> well, no, his name means to add, oh, okay. right? I'll give you a hint. Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, oh. Yosef, Hatzadik. Hatzadik. Oh. Yosef Hatzadik. Okay, so when we go into this parsha, uh, the one thing, especially when you talk from the Hasidic perspective, we need to remember that we're talking about Yosef Hatzadik. It's very, very easy to look at these parshas and say, somebody needs a smack in the head. You know what I mean? Like, it, you look at you could look at the parshas and like, in fact, the Gemara actually learns from these parsha from this parsha that you're not allowed to favor one child over the other because it leads to su- to such you know devastation. Um, but when we look at the, and kind of what we're trying to do here, while we do want to take personal lessons and how do we grow and learn from this situation, but I want to also hold on to that place of respect of understanding that we're talking about Yosef HaTzadik, and we're talking about the, the brothers. These are going to be the, founder, the founding blocks of Am Yisrael. So we, when we talk about, oh, they did this, and then this, and I can't believe that, we have to like pause a second, at least in our headspace, and say, who are we talking about? So 
are there things that we can learn and are there things that we, you know, maybe like as in relationships or things we would do differently? Yeah. But I think like we can't, okay, this is my, my, my pet peeve, <laughs> you know, where people, there's a, 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 like a very common attitude today in Israel to look at, at the Torah's Govei Naim, like it's, they're like us, like it's sort of like, they're just like us and they're nothing, they're not, they're not any more special than we were and therefore like it's very, you know, like Israeli and straight and they were wrong and they're no good and blah, 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 right? Um, I have a very hard time with that. I grew up in, a, in, a, in an educational system that the, the Avis and the tribes were, were they were big. They were, they were able to found Am Yisrael. And so we have to like, I want to just pause for a second because we're going into such crazy stories. And it's like, we have to really take a pause and say, but we're talking about extreme tzaddikim in all these stories. And, and when we don't understand what's going on and there's so much that we don't understand, the question is, are we the one who's missing the point? Or were they, you know, the easy answer is say, oh, they just, they just messed up and there's nothing to do about it. Like, whatever. But I want to just put that pause before we start. Okay. Um, so the, the thumbnail, what's, what's the Parsha? Parsha starts off with... Did, it, nobody had, did anybody have a chance to look at the Parsha this week? Yeah. Really? I'm so impressed. It was such a hectic week. Um, okay, so what do we have? Okay. Okay. And like, there's some stuff with the brothers and like jealousy. Okay, before the stuff with the jealousy, what are we, the first thing that we're introduced to, the, which is going to be very important for Joseph us to know? Is 17. We, it says, Ela told us Yaakov, these are the offspring of Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvase Shana. Yosef is 17 years old. So let's put a pause and say, he has 13 kids, 12, 12 sons and a daughter that the Torah names. But we say, who are the offspring of Yaakov? The Torah only is going to mention Yosef. And that's going to become the seeds of what's going to happen with the, with the siblings. And so, like I say, your, your first thing is like bad parenting. But I want to say, how is this cosmic? What's cosmic about this? And what is, what is, what is sadic about this? And we're going to hopefully touch on that. So, um, so we, have, we were introduced to Yosef a little bit. And then we have, it tells us that, that Yisrael loved Yosef. And remember, Yaakov has two names. And what did we say? Yisrael is usually used when we're talking about Jewish destiny things. Yaakov is being used when it's personal family. And Yisrael is being used when it's Jewish destiny things. So Yisrael loves Yosef. There's a part, the part of Yaakov that, that is Yisrael is what really connects to Yosef. And the brothers don't like this. Shocking but true. They, they do not appreciate this, this display of favoritism. And how does Yosef help them in their hatred? He tells them he his dreams. He tells them his dreams. No, the, he had the dreams. He had the dreams. But then he told them the dreams. But you, the, what, I think it was the Rashi. So it says like he was not Twice. mature enough though. Huh? He wasn't mature enough to fully realize like the impact. He thought he was being helpful. That's what he told on his brothers. That was the part we told on his brother. But the question is like, you were having these issues and you're going to have these dreams. So uh, I want to, I want to, our Parsha is going to start and end with dreams. Um, I want to quickly, and the truth is I want to, because of, <coughs> here's, I think it's a, it's 11. <laughs> we can still give you more sequences if you want. Um, um, we're going to, I mean, we know what's going to happen, right? No spoilers here. 
The brother's going to end up selling him. He's going to go down to Mitzrayim. He's going to have his encounter with Mrs. Potiphar. He's going to end up in jail. Mrs. Potiphar. It doesn't say her name. Um, and he's going to end up in jail. And then in the end, he's going to interpret dreams for the, the butler and the baker. And he says to the butler, remember me when you get out and talk to the pharaoh for me. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. But in the middle of that story, if anybody's been following along... Uh, in the middle of that story, we have a story of Yehuda after the sale of Yosef. And before he gets down to Egypt, we have a chapter sort of, it seems a little editing would have been in order if we're going to be, you know, crass about it. Um, where all of a sudden we have this whole conversation about Yehuda getting married and his children. It's a whole long, complicated chapter smack in the middle of Yosef being sold and Yosef arriving in Egypt. Okay, so that's, yay, we finished the whole Parsha. I'm so excited, yay, we'll watch you finish it. Okay, so that's the whole, that's Parsha. Now let's look in a second. What's the first dream that Yosef has? If you look inside, we're at, uh, the, the look inside, look inside. We're in chapter 37, verse 5 and 6 and 7. Yes, what is he saying? What's his dream of Eve? What's the dream? There were binding sheaves in the field when suddenly my sheaf stood up and remained upright. And then your sheaves gathered around and bowed low to my sheaf. What's a sheaf? A sheaf is, a, like a, is bundle a bundle of wheat. of wheat. It's a bundle of wheat, okay? And were the, bro- the brothers impressed to hear this? They yeah. were not. <laughs> no, they were not. Which is valid if that's what your youngest sibling is saying to you. Like that's Second to youngest, but yes, correct. He's, he's definitely of the Eva, yeah. Um, but it's very interesting. And I want to talk about the dream for a second. Um, the place of the place of both of the dreams is very clear that Yosef has dreams of him being a king and him being a ruler, um, and and there's a conversation about what why is the first dream with sheaves of wheat, right? So, first of all, a lot of the mafarshim, a lot of the commentaries talk about the idea that what the dream is hinting is that him becoming king will be via wheat. How does Joseph end up becoming king? Because the, the there's a famine in Egypt and he gives the suggestion to store the wheat so that we... And they go to him and like, so please, please give us... And they end up coming bowing to him for wheat. Okay, so that's a lot of the commentaries talk about that idea, which is kind of, kind of cool. Hasidus has a, a very interesting thing that I, I mean, I think is very interesting. Um, what is... there? Okay, first of all, whenever we... This is my... My, my hyperlink. Whenever I hear field, what do we autom- I automatically think of? If you've been learning with me a little bit, every time we have field, but what do we do in the field? We go out to greet the king. No, we go to greet the king is what, that's work. an elo. But we work in the field. Oh. The place of the field is the place that we do all of Vedas Hashem. All our service of Hashem is in that place of field. We're not the city, we're the field. Okay, so in the field is where we do mitzvahs and where we interact and bring Hashem into our lives and bring, you know, so first of all, the brothers are in the field. That means we're talking about some kind of avaitis Hashem, some kind of service of Hashem that's going on. Why wheat? Why wheat? Why not picking apples off a tree? Doesn't wheat have a significance? Like it, wheat, of course wheat has significance. Like, but isn't, like wheat is made... Like makes bread and isn't bread con- like connected to like Torah like its sustenance and like life? Yes, yes. I'm not saying no, but I'm saying yeah. Not where you're going with that. No, that, those are all good answers. What? There was commentary like not this past like ages ago to do with like wheat. 
having like some power of like something that you can't learn until you eat yeah. grain. Until you eat, a, a child can't speak until he eats grain. There's conversation in the, in the commentaries that what they ate in the Garden of Eden was wheat. There's all kinds of kind of other things. But one of the, the thing kind of I guess if it's in my head and I don't say it out, you're not going to get what I'm saying. One apple tree can give you hundreds of apples if you know how to do it. I don't know how to do it, but like I'm I'm not even a failed farmer. I'm like whatever, right? But one one trunk gives you many many fruit, but every single stalk of wheat has its own root. And what Yosef and the brothers were doing was they were saying, in the field where we have our avodas Hashem, I have this random thing that happens to me, and I have this occurrence that happens to me, and I have this occurrence that happens to me. All these things in my life that somehow look random and detached, I need to gather them into one bundle. I need to understand that all of this is part of my service of Hashem. All of those disjointed things, and I'm like, what's this? It's not a bunch of different things that share the same root. So many behaviors and people and events and life, you know? It's, it's, so much of it looks like, how does that all go together? But, but what Yosef is telling the brothers first and foremost is that we are gathering, we, we're taking everything in our life and we're making it into one bundle. And when we get the fact that this is our life, all of these things, it's not like, oh, that, maybe we'll just leave that one out. All of it has to come into our Avaidah Hashem. All of it has to come into our service of Hashem. That's the beginning of our real Avaidah. So that's the, that's in, when Hasidus talks about the dreams, that's one of the things they talk about over here. Okay? And, uh, and then we know that he has another dream. And the second dream is the sun, moon, and stars bowing down to him, right? So you see, first of all, and uh, we see that his dreams are going up in like realm. We're going from wheat to something celestial. So it's going to like a more spiritual kind of place. Um, and, uh, and this, there you go. And if you take a look at verse 11, he tells the story to his father, and then he tells us to his brothers. That's in verse 10, sorry. And, um, and his father says, and his father says, like, your mother and I are going to go bow to you. His mother isn't alive. His mother passed away when he's nine years old. So, like, how is, like, how is that going to work, right? Why would Yaakov say that, though, like? Because, what, 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 one second, one second, one second. And um, he says, well, how are we going to do? But we're, how are we going to bow to you? But look at verse 11. So the brothers are jealous. But his father is guarding this, this event. And what does Rashi say in Shamar Tadavar? Yaakov is waiting and anticipating when will this actually happen? When will this come down to, to things? Just like you said, I wrote in my diary, December 14th, changed my life. When this happened, Yaakov made a note that this was the day of the dream. He knew that this big things were coming. So he's waiting to see when is this going to happen? How is this going to unfold? When is this whole situation going to happen? Um, I want to pause in the story for a second. We're going to now be going into a few Torah portions and we're talking about a crazy sibling rivalry between the brothers and Yosef. And um, and Hasidus tells us that we have to actually take the rivalry one step backwards. 
okay? This is a continuation of the Rachel and Leah story. And this is a conversation that's going to follow forward in history all the time. It's going to go up and down and up and down. Who's going to be, where the leader's going to come from, it's going to keep going pretty much between the children of Rachel and the children of Leah. They're going to constantly be shifting and moving who's going to be in charge. Um, and so when we look at this story, it's not just Yosef and his brothers, because when we're going to hear descriptions of Yosef, it will 100% mirror the, to- the Torah's description of Rachel. Yosef is, discussed, is described as Yefei Torah, Yefei Mare, which is the, f- the masculine form of what Rachel was described as. Yefei Torah, Yefei Mare, beautiful inside and outside. Um, we're having like cosmic shifting that's going to keep moving over here. And it also is going to have relevance for us, obviously, because everything at the end, like if, it does, if it's not relevant to us, then like why is Torah telling it to us, right? And, and, and we're going to end, well, we're gonna, if we don't pick it up this week, it might be more connected to next week. I'm still, I'm still uh, putting the, lining it up in my head a little bit. But I just, I just want to have that a little bit in mind that we're not just saying, you know, we don't like each other. But really, there's, there's, there's a, it's a question of whose Avedis Hashem carries the day, right? So where we talked about, we, I think we started talking about this when we talked about Rachel and Leah, where Rachel was tzaddik, right? She was a tzaddikah. She was beautiful in and out, signifies perfection. And Leah, with her power of prayer, really uh, signifies a place of Balchuva. And the question of which is the way to do it, and that's going to sort of, keep shifting until Mashiach comes and we get them both together. So that's kind of like one of the things I want us to have in mind as was we go through. Was Leah also Yes, for, yes, she was. But the, play, the thing that she symbolizes more than anything is the power of prayer, which is really the power of tshuva. And that, that's, about tshuva, that's about tshuva kind of situation. Um, by the way, if we remember anything from last night, there's, there, you know, there's not a contradiction to be about tshuva and to be a tzaddik kind of thing. That's the ultimate would be, and I guess maybe that's kind of where this is sort of heading, you know, historically, how do we do both of those things? How do we do Rachel and Leah? How do we do Tzadik and Baltruva? And that's kind of going to morph all the way through. Okay? Now, one more thing that I want to talk about before we get to the next section, which is the brothers selling their brother. What is the family history as far as siblings staying in the family? <laughs> trauma but trauma, okay. What happens back a generation? What happens back two generations? Yaakov is chased out. Fighting. So not just fighting and not just chased out. There's going to end up being a very clear choice. Let's say Avram is going to have to make a choice. He has two sons, Yishmael and Yitzchak. Where is this continuing? Who is continuing the Abrahamic dynasty? It's not, he's like, can it be Yishmael, can it be Yishmael? God's like, no, not going to be Yishmael. It's going to be the kid who isn't born yet, right? So Yitzchak is there. Yitzchak has two children, Yaakov and Esau. So yes, Yaakov in a way gets chased out by Esau. But who, is, but, who is, but who is the one who, who is the one who, even though Yaakov was chased out, but who's the one who's chosen for the Abrahamic dynasty? It's going to be Yaakov. So the brothers look at each other and they're like, it's interesting. The Mepharshim actually have two conversations going in two different directions on the same idea. That the brothers look around and they say, our family history is that some are in and some are out. 
So some of the Mepharshans say that the brothers look at Yosef and his favoritism, and they're like, if he's the one who's chosen, that means all the rest of us are out. But if we get rid of him, then, then we're not out. So that's one place. And on the other hand, different Mepharshans talk about Yosef looking at the family history and saying, I'm in a bad space here. I'm, I'm the one who's going to get kicked out of this, this kind of situation. And Hasidus actually explains that the brothers and Yosef, and going back to what we talked about, Yosef at Tzadik, uh, they didn't understand each other. I'm not just saying, oh, he wasn't understood, blah, blah, blah. What was the job of all of the brothers? Taking care of the father. Taking care of the father. But what was their job? Oh, uh, sheep, sheep's... Shepherds, yeah. Shepherds, yeah. They're shepherds, right? They're shepherds. They, what did we talk about shepherds when we spoke about Yaakov being a shepherd? Shepherding is great for your relationship with God. You go out, you don't deal with people, you don't deal with pesky neighbors and blah, blah, blah. You just meditate and daven and you have your own space. Eleven of the brothers, that was their, their occupation. Yosef's like, I'm going to rule the world. And the boys are like, this boy's a cancer. He's going to poison the whole family. You can't possibly go into the world... And, and be a ruler and be, and, and be a Jew. Like, it just is not physically possible. You can only be, to use, let's say, a more modern uh, self-choice word, perhaps, you can only be Jewish if you stay in the ghetto. You can't go out there and interact with the world and, and change and rule, rule the world. How do you do that? We are going to all, all of Judaism is going to die if we go that route. But Yaakov understands that for history, we need Yosef. We need the Yosef paradigm. We need to be able to go into the world and rule the world and not just say, I'll be in my little corner with my sheep doing my thing and the world will just pass me by and I'm not going to be involved with it and I'm not going to impact it and it's not going to impact me. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thing, it's a thought. But Yaakov's like, that's not what Judaism needs. We need to have Yosef, and that's why Yaakov loves Yosef, because he sees that attitude of going in and saying, we are going to rule the world, we need to be able to have that. So with that, and all this back end, who thinks what about who's in and who's out, the brothers leave, they go towards Shem, and what does Yaakov do? What does Yaakov do? He doesn't follow them. Again, look at verse chapter 37, verse 13. What do we have? He sends Yosef to check on them. He sends Yosef. But what name again is being used over here? Yisrael. Yisrael is going to, he says to Yosef, your brothers are in Shechem. Go and see how they're doing. And what does Yosef respond? Very powerful word. What does he respond with? Same Pasuk in 13. He named Yosef's not an idiot. He knows what the lay of the land is. He knows that his brothers don't love him. He also knows that that's where he needs to be going, and he goes there. And as he, so he goes and he says, he sees what's happening, blah, blah, blah. And he says, actually, in the next verse, he says, he sends him, he sends him from the valley of Hebron, and he goes to Shechem. And Rashi says, Hebron's on a mountain, it's not in a valley. And what does he say? What's the Emek Hebron? What's the depth of Hebron? It is the Emek, uh, the eight, one second. It's from the depth of the, the deep secrets that were, or the, the, the deep um, advice of the tzaddik, Avram, who's buried in Hebron. 
Because he was told, Avram was told what? Your children will be strangers. In their own land. Nope. In a strange land. Not in their own land. Your children will be strangers in a strange land and they'll be slaves there for 400 years and then they're going to come back. And Yaakov's like, we're going to start this process now. We're going to, he doesn't consciously necessarily know this, but this is what's going on. He's sending Yosef to send, we know where the story's going to end up, right? I'm not ruining it for anybody. The Jews are all going to end up in Egypt and slavery, blah, 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 right? Okay, just spoil the story for you. But um, so he, we know where it's going. And Rashi says there were two possible ways for the Jews to go down to Egypt. One, as we've done other exiles, schlepped out in chains. Take them, take them in chains and bring them as slaves. Or, and Rashi gives this example, if you want a cow to move, you take the baby. You move the baby and the cow's going to follow. Because you can't move a big cow. They're very big and heavy. I'm, I'm assuming I've never actually seen a real-life cow up close, but I'm assuming. Take the calf and the cow will follow. So Yosef gets taken down to Egypt and Yaakov's going to end up following. And we're going to talk about this in a second, about what happens to the Jewish people's relationship with Egypt because of the fact that they followed Yosef. So they willingly... No. <laughs> no. No, they did it willingly. But the question is, here's the story, and here's what's really happening, or here's what's really happening, right? I mean, this is a story, and this is how everybody thinks we're doing. So we think we're operating on this plane, but Hashem is the, the, the master chess maker, and he's moving the pieces as he wants, making you think that you're making these choices, but really, there's a bigger plan going on over here, Okay? So I want to say, and we're, so we're going to talk about this a second when we talk about the sale. Okay, so, so Yosef goes and he can't find his brothers. If you take a look in verse 15, he's a, a man finds him, he's kind of lost in the field, and the, and the, and the, sorry, and the husband, and the man says to him, what are you looking for? And what does Yosef answer? I'm looking for my brothers. Do you know where they are? Do you know where they're, 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 um, where they're shepherding? So he basically tells them where to go. But I want to pause here for a second. Because Rashi says, who is this? Ish? Ish? Here it says, it's Gabriel. The angel Gabriel finds him and, um, and, and helps him. So, so the, like, the, like the Hasidic Shereb is asked, we just had... Last week, um, Yitzchak, uh, Yaakov met an Ish, right? And what did we say who that Ish was? Angel of Esav. An angel of Esav. And they say, say so how, why does that Ish become the angel of Esav? And this, and this Ish becomes Gabriel. Like, how do you know what's going on? So one of the Hasidic Rebbe said that we know that Yaakov went back to, try, to move his stuff from point A to point B, Right? And he sees this person there and he says, could you help me? Could you help me with, you know, with the ferry? And the guy's like, I'm so sorry, but I have to go praise God now. I can't help you. So, when, so the chassid, I forgot who it was and I apologize because his yard site was last week and it would have been a chus, but I don't remember. He's, I know he's like the, the father of the Majestu dynasty. So I don't remember who it was, but it's easy enough for me to check. So he says that when you have somebody who's so busy with their own personal avodas Hashem that they can't help another person, that's not a good guy. But here's a, here he meets an ish, and the first things out of his mouth are, how can I help you? What are you looking for? Can I help you? That's Gabriel. That's the angel Gabriel. And I think for us and how we, 
I think that one of the possible dangers of learning, especially when you're in a, in a space like this, is it becomes very important to be learning and to, this is what I need for my personal growth and are we still able to open our eyes to somebody who needs our help, even if it's just to ferry things from point A to point, to point B. If it's just to, somebody needs help, am I open to helping them find somebody else? That's, that's also, I think, it's a potential issue, I think. Like, it's so easy to become selfish about our Torah learning because we're finally doing it. We're finally here. We're finally able to learn. One second, not ever. We're finally able to learn. Like, I just want to sit and absorb. And I think, like, to have our blinders off to be able to say, am I needed, is a very, very important. Amber, question. Question about the text. Go for it. Just give me chapter and verse. Um, 37 15. I don't know the match yet. That's okay. Um, just the way it's written on here, I don't know if it's in your homage. The text is really... Like, yeah, it's really spread out here. No, that's that's just a font thing. Yeah, just so that just so that it's on the. It's just for the font. So oh, it's no, the, like, no, 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 no. It's just for how you have it over there. Um, okay, that's one thing. The other thing that I think is such an important question for us to ask ourselves and to remind ourselves. Um, the man says to him, "What are you looking for?" And Yosef's response is, "I'm looking for my brothers." And I think that uh, for us in our lives, we are often asked, consciously or subconsciously, what is it that we want? What is it that we're looking for? And how we answer that question becomes a litmus test for ourselves. Are we on the right path or not? Are we, you know, when the, what do you want? I just want to go on a vacation to whatever. And what do I want? I just... How I answer the question, what do you want? I want to put a plug in there that is very telling to ourselves. And when we're in that place of making choices, to be aware of that that, is, that that is a conversation that we need to have with ourselves. How do we answer the question, what do I want? What are, right now it's easy. You know, when you're in a place of learning, it's easy to say, I want Torah and I want God and I want meaning and I want purpose. But what happens... I told you, I feel like today's the day after, a little bit after the regular last night. What happens the day after? What happens when it isn't given to you on a, on a, you know, on a schedule and expectations, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be there, I'm going to do that. How do we then remind ourselves what I, what I really want and what's really important to me? So I want to just highlight that for a second. And I want to say one third thing about that, specifically about Yosef. He wasn't an idiot. He knew his brothers didn't like him. And still, what's the first thing when you say, what, do, who, what are you looking for? I'm looking for, I'm looking for my brothers. I'm looking for my brothers. All Yosef wanted was to have a family unit and to have it working together. He, did, he wasn't unaware that there was strife and there was struggle. And still he's like, how can we make this work? That's really what I want. I just want my brothers. Okay? Um, one more thing sort of to, to tie into what I said before about the angels. Um, so we know what happens, right? Adverse you test by Yomer Isha Lachiv. One says to a man says to his brother, "Hey, the big dreamer's coming. You know, let's let's throw him, let's kill him, and we'll see what you know. We'll just we'll throw we'll kill him, throw his body in a pit, and then see what happens with his dreams." Um, and so Reuben comes and he saves them. He says, "Let's not let's not kill him. Let's put him in the pit, right?" And um, and what's what does it say here at the end of this verse? 22. Why did Reuben say put him into the pit? Save him from death and restore him to his father. Exactly, because he wants to go save him 
He wants to come back later and save him, right? <laughs> now, um, there's a, a, the Medrash says that there are three places in the Torah where people did something, and if they would have realized that their behavior would be recorded in the Torah, they would have done it in such a grander, a more grand fashion. More grand. Okay, and one of, the, one of the examples that they give is over here with Yehuda. If he would have realized that Torah would have recorded, was going to record, that he had an intention to come back and save his brother, Medrash says he would have picked him up out of the pit, then put him on his shoulders and carried him back to his father. It also talks about Aaron, when he went to meet Moshe, when Moshe was coming to save the Jewish people. It says that if he would have realized it would have been written, he would have come with drums and instruments to, to meet him. I forgot who the third one was. There are many times in our life that we do something, it was a good thought, like, we don't realize that it's an earth-shattering thought that's worth being put into Torah. And, and at the same time, we don't have that, you know, we don't get to say, oh, did that go into Torah, did that go into Torah? Sometimes we, like, look around, like, we didn't do anything. We just said hi to somebody. We just did a little behavior. Uh, who was saying yesterday about the, the tense, uh, the... the I think Sarah was talking about the behavior of the tent, of the, something that's small and little and not so, not so massive. We have to understand that all of the things that we do are important and massive. And even if they aren't written in Torah, because Torah is codified already, but all of the, everything that we do is, is important and worthy of being taken care of. Shula, do you have a comment? I, to be honest, I, I have a question about the thing that you said, like if they had known that it will be recorded, they would do that different right. way. Why? Like because because, because you other people will read about that, or because no, because it makes them realize make... that it's significant. Mm. Oh. It makes them realize that it was important. Oh, if Torah is going to report re, re, recorded, that means that was important. Imagine, for example, Aaron's an easy one to think. How many times do you go to pick up somebody at the airport? That is essentially what he did. When he goes to meet, Yo- when he goes to meet Moshe, when he's coming to Egypt, he's picking somebody up from the airport. How significant is that? So I think that's the point. The point is like, they thought they were doing something small. Here, Reuben had a thought. He didn't even have an action. Because we know he wasn't even there when they sold Yosef. He comes back, he's like, oh my gosh, kids, get, we're gone, we're right. He wasn't even there. That the thought that he was going to do something good for somebody else was so big that Torah marks it down. Like, oh, wow, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And that's what, I think that's what the Medrash is highlighting, that sometimes we think we're just doing a little something or we're not really doing anything major. Yeah, it is major. We might not see it, but in the cosmic levels, it is, in fact, major. It's very interesting. We know where was Reuven. Why was Reuven not there when they sold Yosef? Anybody remember? Where was his father? So that Rashi gives two different explanations. Either it was his turn to go help with his, take care of his father. His father was old, and it was his turn to serve his father. The other opinion that Rashi gives is that Reuben was off on the side doing tshuva. Because last week's Parsha, after Rachel passes away, Reuben goes and he moves the beds around. He moves his father's main residence to his mother because Yaakov had moved it to his, to Rachel's maidservant and to Bilhah. And um, he, was, he was like, my mother has to place, you know, second fiddle to her sister. That's one thing, but not to the maidservant. And that's not happening. And... Um, or concubine, whatever you want to call her, and um, and he was wrong, and he was wrong for that. And so he, at this point, he was off doing tshuva. That's Rashi's second his second reason. Reuben wasn't there at the sale because he was doing tshuva. And the same thing that we talked about before, 
When there is, and the Rebbe talks about it often, when there is a Jewish child in a pit screaming out for help, you cannot take care of your own personal spiritual needs. It, it's, not, it's not the time for that. You, you have to do true, but that's sababa. Obviously, deal with that. But right now, there's a Jewish child in a pit, in a place of danger. You need to act and you need to help. You can't just say, oh, like, the, like, the, like Asa's mom. You can't just say, oh, I'm taking care of my spiritual growth. I can't help you right now. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. The other thing that we, and we're going to have later on, that after the brothers sell Yosef, they sit down to eat. And they're like, what? How do you, you know, how could you be so callous about that to just, and again, you know, you got to imagine that Yosef's in the pit, he's screaming his head off. Like, he's not just sitting there saying, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen next, right? He's, he's in a pit with snakes and scorpions. you got to imagine that he's screaming his head off. What? The Rashi says they sat down to break bread, and when they lifted, like, their eyes, they saw the Ishmael. Correct, correct. You throw your brother into a pit, and you sit down to eat? Yeah. You should be heartbroken. Even if they felt that they were right in what they had to do, and according to Hasidus, they definitely felt that spiritually Yosef was a danger to them, you should be so heartbroken, you shouldn't be able to eat anything. To, to sit down and have a meal after you made this decision to get rid of your brother, that's, that's next level, not cool. <laughs> hmm? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a, okay, but an interesting thing, and this is what I want, I sort of want to talk about this, we're doing fine for time, there's another thing that I also really want to talk about, because Hanukkah is next week, so, we're doing fine for time. Okay, so, when the brothers take Yosef and they put him into the pit, in effect, what they're doing is that they are taking ownership of Yosef, right? And then when they sell him, they are selling Yosef. So they, Ki'ilu, are owning Yosef, right? Now, we know that there's a halachic principle. Masha kana evid, kana rabbi. Whatever a slave owns, the master owns. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Familiar with this, right? So, Yosef, who belongs to the brothers, gets sold down to Egypt, rises, Late. that's next week's part, it didn't happen yet, he's going to rise in power and he's going to rule Egypt. Who rules Egypt? All the brothers. All the brothers rule Egypt, spiritually. Spiritually, not physically. Physically, Yosef rules Egypt, but spiritually, the brothers, when they go down to Egypt, and this is, they're going to be going in to start the exile, and this is a lesson that's so important for us. They're going in for an exile. They're going in to like do whatever they need to do there, but spiritually, they own the place. They don't have to be afraid. They don't have to be nervous about what the neighbors are going to say. They're the boss, and that's really what we need to know. And this is going to happen right here. When the brothers take Yosef and they sell him, they are, in fact, halachically acquiring him, and they are his owner. And so when we go down to Egypt, where we, we are all there, we have all been born in various versions of Egypt, we have to understand that at the end of the day, really, 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 Egypt has no hold over us. We own it already because it's kind of spiritually talking about like going back to the place where the brothers owned Egypt. They were the, the, they were the spiritual boss of Egypt. 
And therefore, they were able, or they could have been able, to go through Egypt almost unaffected by Egypt. We know which of the tribes actually did do that in fact. Who, which tribe went through the exile in Egypt unaffected by Egypt? Levi. Levi, tribe of Levi, right? Why, was Moshe, why were Moshe and Aaron able to go walking around? What's a book away, but still, why were they able to go walking around? Because they were from the tribe of Levi and they weren't working. They never bought into that vision of exile. We'll talk about it more when we get to Shmos. Don't get, don't, don't bother. You look bothered. Don't get bothered yet. We didn't finish our Parsha. Okay? Beseder. So, uh, blah, 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 blah. Okay. You can't say blah, blah, blah. It's the <laughs> No, no, no. We talked about, I'm just looking I'm where I'm up to in the Chumash, right? They come to Yosef, they take off his, his goat, his, his, his thing. That one. They take off his tunic. Um, and we were talking about it a little bit before we talked about clothing. So I was telling Emily that one of the Mephoshim talked about that, the, excuse me, that, first of all, that the tunic was made of silk. It was very, very, very fine. Like, if you scrunched the whole thing up, it would actually fit in your fist, one of the Mephoshim say. That's how fine it was. And understand how in that time, that was so rare and so prohibitively expensive. We're talking about how hard it was to make clothing. Unless you were making clothing out of leather, which was relatively easy, but if you were going to have to take the, create the threads, weave the thing, make the, right? And remember, silk is not indigenous to the Holy Land. So this is going to be a super, super, clothing in general are going to be expensive and hard to make. So you're going to make clothing that's sturdy. To make an outfit of silk, that's like, next level, I don't say indulgence, but really Yaakov was looking at him as a king and that was what he needed to wear. And one of the things that I was telling Emily is the Mokharshim say that it had long sleeves that came over his wrists. It covered over his wrists, which was like such an extravagance because if the material was so hard to make, it was so hard to make any kind of cloth, you wouldn't use anything extra, like regular clothes were utilitarian. They covered what they had to cover. There wasn't, like, why extra? Why would you have extra material? Like, what's the point of extra material? In fact, the whole idea of collars on clothes is a new, like around the time of the Altrevas, when collars on clothes became the fashion. Like, why would you put material that has no use on your shirt or on your jacket? Like, what a waste, right? So, so back in the day, for sure they weren't. So Yosef's, Yosef's uh, tunic was very, very, very expensive. And they, uh, and they talk about it, and they, here they take it, and they dip it into blood, and, um, and then they end up selling him from here to this to this one. Interesting thing that, that uh, Rashi brings out, the Torah tells us that the, the, they were carrying spices, right, to say that, that uh, Yosef, normally these kind of peddlers would carry um, neft and kerosene and all kinds of strong-smelling stuff, but they didn't want, Hashem didn't want Yosef to go down in that space. He goes down with all the spices. Um, okay. Okay. And then, uh, and then they, um, and then, here's the thing. So Reuben comes back. He sees what, that he's missing. Yosef's on his way out. We're at chapter 37, verse 29 and 30 and 31. They, they slaughter a goat. And they're all nervous to now take, like, you know, now that we've actually done it, now we have to go tell dad what we just did. Um, and they're all very nervous. So there's a conversation. Who did they send? Did they actually hire some random messenger to take this shirt and say, we found this? They were all very nervous about what to do. And, um, 
And they say to him, do you, do you know, do you recognize this article of clothing? And he, he does it and he says, it's my, he, he says, it's my, it's my son's and a wild animal ate him and he's, he's, and he, he rips his clothes and he mourns and he refuses to be comforted. He's, he's not ever going to be comforted and all his children try to comfort him. One second. And they, and they, and they, and none of them can, can, and none of them can, uh, None of them can comfort him. Um, and I think that's when the, the brothers realize the extent of what they just did. When they realize that their father is not going to get over this. Rashi says, because there's a bracha that, you know, we talk about how time heals all wounds. Well, time only heals the wounds for people who are actually dead. If somebody's actually alive, you don't have that bracha of comfort. You never get comforted like, oh, they're not alive anymore, but they're in a good place. Well, you don't get that because they're not actually alive. So that's a special bracha. For that, that's given, that he wasn't able to get access. And that's when we have, I think, the brothers really realizing, ouch. And the next story that we're going to have, Lila, I'm going to get to in a second, is where Yehuda loses, he, he, he's like, it, everybody's so upset at him because they're like, you could have ch- stopped this because he said, don't kill him, let's sell them, you know, blah, blah, blah. So they're, which by the way, we have to go, in, we don't have time to go into more like, Ruin's like, what benefit is it if we just kill him? Let's sell him. Like, that's like, you know, in the light of Callus Commons value, brother, right? Um, uh, they're like, you could have stopped us. And we know that later on, Yehuda's going to become the king. You'd have had that leadership, huh? leadership quality. And, and they blame him in the end instead of... Now, they also have all made a pact that nobody's going to tell. So they're not... The brothers are not allowed to tell. They, go out, they called God in for the minion... And there's a conversation, like, because there's, there's only nine brothers, right? There's nine brothers there. Binyamin wasn't there. Reuven uh, wasn't there. And then Yosef. So according to some commentaries, they call God as number 10. And they make a pact that they're not telling. And according to some commentaries, Yosef is number 10 because he's all part of this. Who knows about this, by the way? Who knows that Yosef's still alive? Well, yeah, God, for sure. But somebody who's alive at this time who knows that Yosef is alive. Yitzchak. Yitzchak's still alive. Yitzchak's still alive. And Yitzchak knows that Yosef's alive, but it's not his place to tell his son. That's so interesting. He's not, how he's going to be... How does he know? How does Yitzchak know? Huh? Yitzchak, no. Yitzchak wasn't part of the oath. So, so, so Shula wants to know, how does Yitzchak know? We know that a tzaddik knows everything except things that, are, that apply to his particular test. This is not Yitzchak's test. This is Yaakov's test. So Yaakov doesn't see it. He doesn't see the clarity of it. But for Yitzchak, it's not his test. He, it doesn't, it's not his, it's not his avayda to work through. So he sees it, but he also sees, if God's not telling him, I'm not telling him. It's not my place to tell him. And Yitzchak is actually going to live for 13 more years. Yaakov and, Yaakov and Yosef are not going to get together for 22 years, but he's going to pass away without ever telling his son what he knows uh, to be the truth. Lila, question. Yeah, why, so when um, Yaakov is in mourning, why is he referred to Yaakov and not Israel? Because, I'm going to make this up. Okay. Okay, but I think it, I think it makes sense. Okay. Because the part that's mourning is the personal part. Because hmm. we know, really, Yosef is in fact alive, and he's starting the, the Jewish people's mission. He's going down to Egypt, and he's going to start to make his way into a place of power. But it's the, the Yitzchak part of the reality that's in such pain that can't be comforted. 
because at the, he's still his father. And so that pain, and I think it's, we have to like also not dismiss that place of the personal space. Like, yes, Hashem has a plan, and yes, it's all for the good, but there's also the place, and I think this is what Torah is telling us, like, we need to also hear our pain, and we also need to be able to sit with that, even if it's not cosmic. Exactly, feel your feelings. Even if it's not the cosmic picture, ultimately it's all going to be good, but can we really acknowledge that right here, right now, this is very painful? Yeah, we can. Even if we also know in the back of our heads and maybe we're not getting there yet, Hashem is good and everything Hashem does is for the good, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's a different conversation, but that place of raw pain um, is coming from the Yaakov place. It's from his immediate, the family space. Okay? Okay. <laughs> next story. What's our next crazy story that happens? We have Yehuda. Um, we have Tamar. the story, Yehuda and Tamar. We have the story of Yehuda and Tamar. What's the story? Yehuda, now clearly there's no sense of time in this, in this picture, right? Because at the end of this chapter, Yosef's going to again arrive to Egypt. Meaning the last words that we have, verse 36, that the Midianim him, sold him to the Egyptians, who sold him to Potiphar, the Sri Sapar, blah, blah, blah. If you go to chapter 39, verse 1, you're going to have the exact same verse again. Okay? It's going to come right back there. Yosef Hurid Mitzrayma, Yosef was brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, the Swiss Pyro, bought the Tabachim. The, the he, he bought it from the Ishmaelim. Okay, so slightly different wording, but it's the exact same word. What happens in the middle? So we have a whole long story of Yehuda. Um, it's clearly years, because Yehuda gets, he moves away from his brothers. They're all kind of upset of him that he didn't act on his leadership qualities. And he gets married. He has three children. His oldest son gets married to a beautiful woman named Tamar. And uh, and he dies, and so Reuben, so sorry. So Yehuda says to the second son, uh, the first son, Er, dies. He says to the second son, Onan, that he should marry Tamar. In the future, in halacha, there's going to be something called a lever of marriage, that if somebody dies, if a, if a man dies without uh, children, so the... Uh, the so the way it came down in halacha was that his, his brother should marry his wife, and then the child is spiritually the, the dead brother's child, right? In the original writing, any first-degree relative could have done what's called yibum, could have married this woman, and uh, that, wouldn't have been a, that wouldn't have been a problem. Is that why, like, Gaurish people believe that the opposite? It's like... I have no idea what Christ people believe. So Henry VIII, he married his brother's wife, and he believed because he married his brother's wife, he couldn't conceive. I can't, I can't even begin to make a bad Conceive, but I feel like there's a connection somehow. I have no idea. Yes. Isn't there an Ashkenazi custom now that you don't do this and you spit on the shoe? Okay, so it's not an Ashkenazi. It's all across the board. Nobody does this, okay? So in the Torah, there was always two options. One is called Yibum, which is marrying the brother's... Marrying the brother... No. Marrying the brother's wife. That's called Yibum. And then the child, the first child that would be born, would actually be called after the dead brother. Right? Mm -hmm. The other option, if for whatever reason they didn't want, any of the parties didn't want to do that, was something called Chalitza, which is, Chalitza really means to untie, and there's a whole procedure of how you untie, spiritually you untie the relationship by physically untying a sandal. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's unfortunately not an unusual, uh, it is kind of unusual, but it's 
Not as, it doesn't never, this doesn't make sense in English. It doesn't never happen. That doesn't make sense. It rarely happens. That's what I wanted to say. That's what I wanted to say. It rarely happens. I know that my, uh, my grandfather had to do chalitza for his brother's wife. They were, they, it was after the war. His brother had, had disappeared in the war. And he was, then they found out that he was dead. And his, and his wife wanted, his widow wanted to remarry. But she couldn't remarry until that relationship was untied. So it was, like in my little family, I know of such a story, you know. It's, it's, it's kind of rare, um, but it's still something that's in it. What? My stomach is just <laughs> okay. So, um, okay, so what happens? So the second son also is not so interested in, he's not interested in having a child that's not going to be his. So he also does not end up consummating the relationship with Tamar, and Hashem kills him, like on the spot. So that's what the Torah says. I didn't make, I'd say it. So, but, 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 Yehud, but Yehud is not in the bedroom. He doesn't know what happened there. So he thinks there's something wrong with Tamar. And in fact, in the Gemara, there's a, there's a name for his, like, oh, yeah, somebody who, met, who buries a bunch of husbands is like, you don't want to marry such a person because they don't have a good track record. So he's nervous to give his third child to Tamar to do this Yibum. So he's like, she's, she's, uh, he's too young. Go wait by your father and we'll get, to, we'll get back to you, right? And clearly he had no intention of ever doing this. And Tamar really saw that there was a spiritual connection between her and Yehuda's family. She waits a couple of years. She sees that nothing's going on. So she, um, she uh, puts on clothes. She hears that her father-in-law is going to shear the sheep. We're back to the sheep again. Um, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? I don't know. Um, so, he, she, so she dresses up as a prostitute. She goes to the corner and he, she takes in, she, she somehow, which is a whole different conversation, how does Yehuda end up going with her? Anyway, she becomes pregnant. She, she, they, they're together, and she goes back, and she puts on, it says, her, her widow's clothes again, and she stays at home. You who did the me- She it, just makes herself at home? No, no, she goes back home to oh. her father. She goes back to her home to her father. She goes back to her father's house, right? In the meantime, she, you didn't have any money on him, so she said, give me, give me something. Like, uh, give me, you know, and you'll, send me, you'll send me goats tomorrow. So he gives her three things. He gives her a signet ring. He gives her a staff. And he gives her, like, some kind of garfield belt situation thing. Okay. And he, the next day, he goes to send somebody to get his, his stuff back with the, the payment. And she's not here. Nobody's here. Nobody knows who she is. This is nobody's corner. And we don't know what you're talking about. Okay. So he goes back. It says, about three months later, he, Yehuda hears that Tamar is pregnant. And he accuses her of adultery. Because somebody, a woman who's waiting for Yibum, is not allowed to remarry. She's almost like an Agudu. She's not allowed to remarry until this procedure happens. So he's like, this is terrible. She committed adultery because that's what it would actually be halachically. And as she's being taken out to, kill, to be killed, she says, the owner of these objects is the father of the child. She doesn't say, hello, that was you. She just leaves it up to him to either step up or not step up. And he says, Sadkahimimeni, she is more righteous than I am. And they end up getting married, and they have twins. They have two children, Peretz and Zerach, and from Peretz comes Mashiach. David comes from Peretz. Um, now, before, I have like two minutes, so get, hold that thought. So, the Gemara says about this interlude that Yaakov is in mourning, Yosef is in mourning, the brothers are all devastated, 
and what's and, and Yehuda goes off to get married, and what is Hashem doing? Hashem is planting the seeds of Mashiach. That this whole story, we have to understand, Yosef going to Mitzrayim, Yehuda married, all this whole situation is the beginning of the seeds of Mashiach. Um, in Hasidus, it also talks about the idea, and I'm going to finish with this thought, that what is it, Yehuda says to Tamar after three months that you have been unfaithful. And Hasidus says, we are in Kislev, which is three months from Tishrei, right? We have Tishrei, Cheshwin, Kislev. And in Tishrei, we promised Hashem that we were going to be loyal to him and we were going to only, you know, be his. And, and now it's three months later and where are we standing? To simplify the mimer. Like, what are we up to and how loyal are we? And the Neshama basically says to Hashem, no, 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 we're still yours. We still belong to you. We still are connected to you. And the, and the, the symbols that Yehuda gave of the, the signet ring and the, and the staff and, the, and the, the gartel are all symbols of Hanukkah, right? We know that the Jews found one cruise of oil that had, it was signed by the Kohen Gadol. We light the menorah with a wick, which is like that. And also, I forgot where the stick was from. But it was, oh, from the war. So it's all connected to Hanukkah. And that place of, in the place of darkness, when we, everybody wants to come and sort of knock us down, we have to be able to tap into that reservoir of saying, no, 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 we really are loyal to Hashem. We really are connected to Hashem. And the proof is that we have, the, we have access to the signet ring. We have access to that oil that is, that is, you know, that cruise of oil that's protected. We have access to the light. We have access to the, the ability to fight back. Um, and it goes into a longer situation and conversation, but we're out of time and I don't, whatever. But, um, so I want to give us a bracha. Guess what? We didn't actually finish our parsha because we, we did fit, there's another, the Yosef and the there. Well, maybe we'll pick it up next week. I want to give us a whole bracha. We're really, we're between Yutes Kislev and Hanukkah right now. And both of them are light and warmth. And the way we fight a world that is dark and cold is by being a source of light and warmth um, for them and for each other. Sometimes we look around and we say, I don't know what's going on. I don't see how this is supposed to work and I don't see how this is supposed to make sense. And that's when we need to sort of tap into our, our Yosef space a little bit and say, there's something bigger going on that I don't know. If I can pull light and warmth, then I can shine the path and keep everybody warm until we get to the end of the story. So I want to give us a bracha that we end up being, that we for ourselves are generators of light and warmth and that that should be so powerful that it impacts people around us. Have an awesome rest of the day. Have a great Shabbos. And a lichtige Hanukkah, an illuminated Hanukkah. Amen.